As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Africans are migrating in ever larger numbers, but not, as you might suppose, to Europe. The large majority move to countries within their own continent. The warmth of their welcome varies. And Hollywood has always loved to tell its own story. Films about Tinseltown have tended to have a cosy, warm glow. But in the Me Too era, the movie industry is a little less eager to flatter itself. But first... Today, China's political and military elite are meeting in Beijing. The annual gathering of the Communist Party's Central Committee will take place over the next four days behind closed doors. Only one agenda item has been made public, a stocktake of the party's 100 years of history. That record is written around transformative leaders who spent many years in power. Mao Zedong, the revolutionary founding father of communist China. And Deng Xiaoping, who opened the country's economy to the world in the 1970s and 1980s. At this week's conclave, President Xi Jinping will assert his place alongside these two giant figures. This is a a crucial stage in Xi Jinping's career. James Miles is The Economist's China editor. He's preparing for a party congress at the end of next year at which he apparently hopes to get approval for another five years in office in defiance of the normal convention. This party central committee meeting, it's about history. And to Xi Jinping, writing history in his style is crucial as a way of justifying his next period in power. So what will happen at the meeting? What's it for exactly? Typically, they give very little away in advance of these meetings. They're held behind closed doors in a military-run hotel in western Beijing. And the only item on the agenda that they've announced is this resolution on history that will form a version of party history that is different from the two other resolutions on party history that the party has adopted in the past. The previous one was in 1981, And the one before that was in 1945. So these things are incredibly rare and incredibly important. Crucially, I think, for Xi Jinping, it will aim to kind of blur the edges between the different phases of Communist Party rule. That is to say, between Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping and skipping a couple of leaders now to Xi Jinping himself. These three men will be portrayed as the giants of Chinese politics, putting in place the building blocks towards what 
Xi Jinping calls the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation by 2049. And the message will be that Xi Jinping is essential for that mission. Can you tell us a bit more about how Xi sees himself in the context of the party's history as a successor to to Mao and Deng? Well, Xi Jinping worries about what he describes as having been a tendency to contrast the eras of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. The Dengists, if you like, using reform as a way of negating the rule of Mao Zedong and saying that that period was essentially wrong. What Xi Jinping is trying to say is that it was all essentially right. For Mao in 1945, it was about repudiating the policies of his critics within the party, justifying a purge of those critics and establishing himself as the rightful leader. In 1981, Deng Xiaoping had just been in in effective control for about two or three years. And this was his big opportunity to make it clear that he was going to take China in a different direction. And Xi Jinping now wants to say that what Mao did and Deng did were essential for what he is now trying to achieve. Mao made China stand up, Deng set the country on the path to prosperity, and now Xi Jinping is going to make it a strong global power. Should we expect this resolution then to address China's global concerns and ambitions? Well, it will portray a global environment that is pretty grim in many ways for China. It will allude to the tensions with America. It will almost certainly mention China's achievements in crushing the coronavirus. We don't know whether the document will mention Taiwan, but given that one of Xi Jinping's missions is to ensure that the Chinese dream comes about, this dream of the great revival of the Chinese nation, as he describes it, you would expect Taiwan at least to be mentioned, even if no specific promises are made. Unification with Taiwan has been described as an essential component. But I think for Xi Jinping to convince the party that he is a Mao-style strongman, as I'm sure he would like to be seen in many ways, he will also have to have some ideas about how to tackle that particular question. And there's clearly a long-term vision here. Mr Xi, we can assume, will intend to stick around for a while to see it through. Well, yes, another five years at least. I think that's all but certain. Immediately after the Congress, another Central Committee meeting will be held. That will be late next year. And at that Central Committee, we'll see a new lineup of the Politburo. And if in the new Politburo Standing Committee, there are no people in it who would be of the right kind of age to take over from Xi Jinping in five years' time, well, maybe that'll be a hint that he's got 10 years in mind. One thing that's speculated about is that he may take on a new or different title at the party congress or at this subsequent central committee meeting, that of party chairman. And that's not been used in China since it was abolished in 1982, partly because the term chairman was so closely linked with Mao Zedong. Deng Xiaoping wanted to send a signal back then that China was moving away from that era of Maoist tyranny. But there's rumour, at least in Beijing, that the chairmanship may be revived and that would be a way of signalling that Xi Jinping is a man of such power that he doesn't mind being compared so directly with Mao. James, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Patrick. 
For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. No lie, up until say five years ago, there was zero clue that my life would be what it is right now. <laughs> zero clue, because that, that was not the plan. Um, so Mawili Gavor is a, a 32-year-old film star in Nigeria in the booming film industry there that's known as Nollywood. Kinley Salmon is an Africa correspondent for The Economist. But he was born and raised in Ghana and had done a little modelling once upon a time, but actually was working as an accountant, having graduated from university. But those modelling photos were spotted and he was soon offered a, a job as a brand ambassador, first in Ghana and then in the big nearby country of Nigeria. I guess once, once the door was open, I was now in the media space. I was on billboards, I was on newspapers, I was on, I was everywhere. Um, well, that led to a work soon after in television and then right on from that into a film role. Uh, he actually initially told his friends and family in Ghana that he'd be gone just for a couple of weeks uh, for the shoot in Nigeria. But, you know, five years later, he's still working a lot uh, based in Nigeria. Whatever Nigerians do, whether good or bad, they're probably going to be the best at it. Mm. I think they have some of the best musicians, sportsmen and everything because they have that drive. So you cannot take away from the fact that Nigeria has immense opportunity despite all the problems that they're facing. What we're trying to Mouli's success is obviously unusual in, in some ways. Uh, most people moving around in Africa don't do so in quite such glamorous fashion. But it is in its own way emblematic of a migration story that's not often told about Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africans are becoming more mobile. Last year, 28 million of them lived outside their home countries, up from 20 million a decade earlier. But only a small portion of that group, less than a fifth, has gone to Europe, where immigration policies have tightened. Far more common is migration within Africa. Leaders in Europe and voters there often seem preoccupied with immigrants coming from Africa into Europe. But enterprising Africans have long been migrating closer to home within the continent in much larger numbers. And that can be a really large economic opportunity for the whole region, particularly if African governments and societies are open to it and perhaps are increasingly open to it. And is work the primary motivation for people migrating within Africa? Well, that's right. Work and economic opportunities, not as many people might think conflict. There are, of course, large numbers of refugees within Africa, but most people moving are moving to search for a better life, if you will. You can see this in the typical destination countries that are most popular in Africa. So South Africa offers considerably higher wages, about five times more than in most of its neighbours. And it's a very large destination country. But also in Ivory Coast, which hosts about 1.4 million migrants from Burkina Faso, income per head is about twice as high as it is in Burkina. It's also worth noting that immigrants who then return home 
often bring skills and experience that they've gained abroad and are generally better off, more likely to start businesses and so on when they return back to their home countries. The challenge, of course, is that it takes money to migrate. Migrants need enough to cover at least a bus fare, you know, and a few nights accommodation while they look for a job and a start in a new place. And at this stage, of course, many Africans still can't afford to do that. But that is changing. And what part do governments play in all this, Kinley? Do African governments make it easy for people to move between countries in, in search of work? Well, some do cooperate uh, to make kind of moving around the continent easier. Uh, in West Africa, for example, there's a, a regional bloc called the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, which is a collection of 15 countries. And they've actually got a free movement agreement. And then in East Africa, there are six countries in the East African community. And they mostly offer visa-free entry to each other's citizens as well. But in some places, of course, you know, barriers to moving and succeeding once you've got to a new country are still pretty high. African migrants often face harassment of sorts from border guards or police. There are still real challenges with qualifications from one African country being recognised in others. And sending money home, remittances, which is a really important part of the benefits that happen from migration within the continent, is particularly expensive in Africa when compared to the rest of the world. And how welcome are people when they arrive and work in new countries? Do we see the same sort of anti-immigrant reaction that we're quite used to in Europe, for example? So this is something that varies quite a bit across the continent. In South Africa in particular, many politicians are quick to blame migrants for, for problems at home. You know, they complain that migrants are taking jobs from locals or dragging down wages. But in fact, even in South Africa, which has had a struggling economy for quite some time, evidence on that is mixed. And in most measurable ways elsewhere in the continent, migration tends to benefit locals. There's good evidence that migration increases manufacturing output, for example, uh, and that migrants are bringing, in many cases, complementary skills, filling niches where their skills are in demand. And of course, they also contribute to the public finances, paying taxes. Often in Africa, they pay more in taxes than they cost in extra public services. In other parts of Africa, the welcome migrants get is often much warmer. So, Kenny, if migration within Africa is generally beneficial, how can public and political support for it be built? In Africa, interestingly, European governments actually bear some responsibility. European motivations often focus on trying to stop uh, migrants from travelling north towards Europe. And so to do that, the European Union and others fund and advise countries to add more border security, you know, conduct more frequent checks and also run campaigns, you know, telling stories to young Africans of death and disaster if they set out for Europe. But African governments themselves also could do a lot more. They could start certainly by stopping police and punishing police who abuse migrants. And where there are these free movement agreements within regions, they should honour them in full. Perhaps most importantly, recently, the African Union has put forward a protocol that would allow free movement across Africa over time. Really, that is a bold step and, and should be ratified by members. Mawuli Gavour, the Ghanaian-born actor in Nigeria, was certainly a very strong advocate for those kinds of agreements. Just imagine the things that we could do if we could up and go to Kenya and do some stuff there, go to South Africa, or South Africans could come here. It would be, it would be amazing. Yeah. We wouldn't need to go to the UK. We wouldn't need to go to all these other places where we seem to put them on such a pedestal, whereas we both know that, bro, every country has got their problems. Yeah. Everyone. And evidence suggests pretty strongly that a more integrated Africa is a much more prosperous Africa. Kenley, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
Hollywood loves making films about Hollywood. From 1952's Singing in the Rain, where Gene Kelly is a silent movie idol who risks career oblivion with the advent of sound. So he creates a musical. To Saving Mr. Banks in 2013, a Disney film which set out to prove how truly wonderful Walt Disney was with a little help from the affable Tom Hanks. My name is Mrs. Travers, Mr. Disney. Oh, Walt, now you got to call me Walt. Navel-gazing is a trope that Tinseltown loves. But as Hollywood is changing, so too is the level of introspection. When Hollywood looks at Hollywood, it often does so in a series of feel-good comedies which go behind the scenes, show the flaws of many of the characters, but at the same time, usually the ethos is the show must go on. John Bleasdale writes about culture for The Economist. However, more recently, especially during the aftermath of the Me Too era, Hollywood writers have turned to gaze at the more dark realities that underlie the business. And how has that manifested itself in on-screen portrayals of Hollywood? Well, the Me Too movement hasn't actually resulted in many films about the film industry. The problems arising have been treated more obliquely. However, some films have decided to address it. Most recently, Jim Cummings' Beta Test, a new and savagely funny satire which follows the life of an agent and is very much the anti-entourage. Jacqueline, was I taken off of the email chain with Marvel? This is a failure. I can't use the language that I'd like to use to you right now because of the new direction that the agency and the country is going. Jim Cummings co-wrote, co-directed and co-starred in the film and it attempts to explore the culture of mendacity and falsehood in the industry of Hollywood. We had so many people from the agency world tell us all these horror stories and we put as many of them as we possibly could into the film of like the constant lying, the constant reframing of problems and then also getting into their marriages, like talking to exes of like what it's like to deal to date someone who you're watching lie all the time and then how that affects your relationship with them of like and what about the culture of hollywood itself that's being sent up here has that changed the way power used to express itself and this was something that was kind of allowed was in the, the sort of the image of the all-powerful male executive shouting his head off and hectoring people and bullying people. And the brutality wasn't seen as a bad thing, but was seen as sort of either at best uh, you know, par for the game, uh, something that is just normal, and at worst something that you just have to put up with, grin and bear it. A good example of a film which took aim at exactly this kind of toxic power play was a 2019 film directed by Kitty Green called The Assistant. What is it? The wife. Say he's in an important meeting. No, say he's in a screening. Where is he? What did you say to him? What did you say? They told me you were smart. Julia Garner stars as a young assistant who's working for a studio based in New York, and she is constantly being harassed and heckled and hectored by her executive boss. It, it is excellent at sort of portraying this poisonous atmosphere that is the dirty side of show business. 
Um, the elephant in the room is obviously that of Harvey Weinstein, and it is something that Hollywood has been slow to address directly, but a film like Jim Cummings's beta test is a definite beginning. Obviously, Weinstein's in prison, but the support system that, that got this guy to where he was is still working. They're still at the same companies, basically. So Hollywood has always been really great at celebrating itself and looking at itself, even when it's being critical in a slightly narcissistic way. But I think the time has come for some genuine self-reflection. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities. In the fifth annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.